0: You are listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host Rochelle. Today we will discuss Unsolved Mysteries Season 1, Episode 11. Welcome back, or if you're new around here, welcome to Mystery Still Unsolved. I'm so excited to be back here with all of you today. Life has been crazy. Life has been a job. Um, I don't think that I've mentioned this before, but maybe I have, um, that I volunteer a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot um, at my daughter's school, and yesterday was art night. And art night is a big event, and by the end of it... My feet felt like they had heartbeats. I was just running around, checking on people, and I realized wrong shoes, okay? They were adorable. They were like these uh, snakeskin booties, but they were not practical. I actually remember the precise moment that I made the wrong choice. (laughs) I was standing in front of my closet, and I was looking at two different pairs of shoes. One were sneakers, and one were the cute booties, and I was thinking to myself, I was like, those are comfy, but these ones look better. And obviously I chose the latter. I don't regret my choice fashion-wise cuz the boots slayed, but my feet still hurt. Oh well, wounds heal but the pics taken last night are forever. So <laughs> no regrets. And maybe it's like that guy with the tattoo that spelled regrets R A G R E T S. No regrets. Okay. I just watched this movie on Netflix two nights ago, and it was suggested to me because literally my whole Netflix queue is true crime mixed in with like children's shows because, you know, balance. Um, It was this movie with Michael Fassbender called The Snowman. Have you seen this movie? It was like number two on Netflix the other day. I won't give anything away other than saying that it disappointed me a little bit in a very common way that scary movies disappoint me. The story, the characters, and the filming were amazing. But, like they do in most scary movies, they just messed it up at the end. And I was like, come on! But definitely an entertaining watch if you're looking for something to do this weekend. If you want to Netflix and chill, that could be a good movie. Um, first off, amazing news... I just sent off packages for those of you who have ordered merch. I cannot wait for you to receive them and I cannot wait for you to like tag me and pics of you wearing them out and about in the world. Um, If you're bummed that you missed out on this last order, don't fret, Buttercup. I will be placing another order for shirts end of June, but in the meantime, go to my site and order a sticker. I have them right now so you can get them really quick. A little bit of housekeeping before we get started. If you're not already following me on Instagram, you should be. It's at unsolved. There you can DM me a case suggestion. You can leave a comment. You can pop in on stories. You can get all of the latest news. Um, Summer is approaching and summer is going to be my third anniversary of hosting this podcast. So you know that there's going to be a giveaway coming up. So you are going to want to follow me on my Instagram. Um, but it's really fun over there. I tell you, like, the latest dish, the latest gossip. Uh, we chat, we reminisce. It's a grand old time. So, head on over there and, and join us. If Instagram isn't your jam, no prop. You can go to my website. Um, it's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There, you can binge all of my episodes. And I think that today makes 108. If 108 episodes is not enough and you feel so inclined to donate monetarily to the podcast, no pressure, you can do so by joining the patron program. And I'm going to link that in the show notes because it just takes a very long time to explain all the tiers. But if you're interested in it, it goes into all the tiers and all the benefits. Um, But I did want to mention one major benefit is just for joining the patron program, you will get a bonus episode each and every month after this episode, I'll be recording that bonus episode. In April's bonus episode, you will hear my take on the Cleveland torso killer. Soup, soup gro- <laughs> gruesome, I know. Um, it was actually quite a biatch to write because this killer had 13 victims. So that's a lot of victims. It's a lot of. Um, background and history that we needed to cover. Um, But I'm excited to share that with the patron members. So come on, join us. Be one of us. You know you want to. (laughs) Oh, that's going to terrify you guys in your nightmares. Moving on. I'm very excited about today's episode. It has been a very long time since we have recapped one of my boyfriend's shows. FYI, if you're new around here, Robert Snack Stack is totally my boyfriend. Bless him. I will say in this episode, we really start to notice Robbie's, uh, you know, less than perfect Botox job. Um, but you know, for sickness and in health, babe, am I right? But botch Botox and all, I still stand by my boo Robert Stack. R&R forever. All right. Without further delay, let's dive in to today's episode. This first case is absolutely devastating, heart-wrenching. No one dies, um, which I'm obviously thankful for, but the trajectory of a bright young woman was forever altered due to the immature actions of a group of unknown individuals. During the spring of 1987, Jenny Pratt was attending her junior year of high school in California. She had dreams of becoming a model, and she certainly had the looks for it. I'll post a picture of her. She was gorgeous, Um, she was kind, and from what I was able to gather, everyone who knew her just loved her to pieces. She met a guy, Curtis Croft, and things began to derail, because when guys are around, don't they just always... (laughs) Curtis was cool, he came from money, and he was an attractive surfer dude. When Jenny introduced him to her mom and dad, they were quite impressed. Curtis was very respectful, he was kind, he always made sure that he got Jenny home before her curfew, and they were excited that he came from a good family. This was the ideal 17-year-old boy to be dating their 16-year-old daughter. It wasn't until a few months later that Jenny's parents learned that that they had been seriously duped. Curtis had been to jail. Curtis had been to jail for selling drugs. Curtis was not 17. Curtis was 24, eight years older than their daughter. But by then, it was too late. Their daughter had been seeing Curtis for almost seven to eight months. Jenny was in love. Um, the parents knew that if they banned Jenny from seeing him, they risked potentially losing their daughter forever. So they felt compelled to allow it. And you know what? Even though eight years isn't the ideal, people make it work. Um, I think that they're usually a little bit older when they start dating though. And also I can kind of see where the parents are coming from. Like if your daughter is going to be dating a 24 year old guy, and you know that she's probably going to like sneak out with him if you, you know, put your foot down and say no. I can see their point of being like, you know what, she's going to date him whether we allow it or do it behind her back. And I'd rather, you know, know her comings and goings instead of her sneaking out all the time. And then we have no idea where she is. So I kind of understand where they were coming from. On April 25th, uh, 1987, against her parents' wishes, uh, Jenny went out with Curtis for a motorcycle joyride. While they were stopped at a light, Curtis claims a white truck filled to the brim with jovial teenagers whizzed past them, running the light. As they went by, Curtis felt something hit the back of his head. Ouch, he thought. That really hurt. He turned back to Jenny to say, hey, I think those kids threw something at me. When he saw jenny slumped up against him jenny's parents were called and were told to report to a nearby hospital where only the most severe cases are taken but when the parents arrived they refused to give them any information just come and come now when jenny's parents arrived they received horrible news Their daughter, Jenny, had survived, but she had severe brain damage, and the doctors actually didn't anticipate her making it two hours, let alone like two days. Jenny's mother wanted to see her. She said that the sight is something she wishes she could erase from her brain. Her daughter's usual blonde hair looked red as it was soaked in blood. Her face was swollen, bloodied, and bruised, and tubes were just sticking out everywhere. Doctors were soon forced to put Jenny into a medically induced coma because of all of the swelling in her brain. But, miraculously, she survived, and while at the hosp- she was at the hospital for six months, she was eventually released home. But Jenny wasn't the same. Worse, she had no recollection of what had happened that night, which made it difficult for police to connect the dots that they already had. So... Let's talk about what police did know up to this point. They knew that Jenny had been struck on the back of the head with a two by four. Um, it was a six foot wooden board. As the truck whizzed past them, the wooden board was found only a few feet from the motorcycle at the time of the accident. They knew a few things that they had learned from Curtis. For starters, um, it seemed like a group of youths had, you know, obviously been behind this, and police agreed. But some things that Curtis was was telling them, like, weren't adding up. For example, Curtis said he didn't get a chance to look at the kids or get a good look at them because they had zoomed past them going 50 miles per hour. Police said, are you sure? 50 miles per hour. Curtis seemed confident. Yep, 50 miles per hour. But police attempted to recreate this scene, and 50 miles per hour was just like, way too fast. In fact, when they recreated it with their dummies going 50, ripped both of the dummies heads clean off. So obviously that miles per hour just was not believable. They recreated the test and did a couple of different speeds and the miles per hour that seemed most believable based on the extent of the injuries to Jenny um, and also where the board was found after the accident was more like 10 miles per hour. 10 miles per hour. That is all it took to permanently damage Jenny's life. Ugh! you know what? Youths, frickin' youths. I'm going to like channel my inner Schmidt from new girl. Uh, you hear crazy things like this all the time, just like these dumb idiot teenagers trying to like show off and be funny with their friends. And then they end up like killing people or maiming them for life. Like I remember in Utah, it was maybe like 10 or 15 years ago, there was a woman who was nearly killed, but she was permanently, you know, maimed for life. Um, when a bunch of, like, dumbass kids decided to throw a frozen turkey through her windshield the day before Thanksgiving as she drove past, um, that woman was actually able to forgive the teenagers that did this and actually, uh, pleaded with police to drop any charges against them, um, and that shows a huge amount of character. Like, I cannot say that I would do the same. I'd be like, nope, punish them to the fullest extent of the law, and then maybe bends some. Um, And then there's this case that happened, I think it would happen in one of the southern states, um, that there were these kids throwing rocks off of a bridge uh, over a highway. And one rock that was probably like the size of your thumb, they threw it and it went right through a windshield into someone's eye socket and they died like immediately. If there are youths among us today, first off, why are you here? This is kind of a gruesome show. But if you are here, uh, don't do that. And if you're with people that do that or are just encouraging you to do it, get better friends because you're suck. I digress. Um, if the truck was going 10 miles per hour, then police believe that Curtis definitely knows who did this, but he's not talking. Why? Well, Curtis already wasn't very well liked by his peers in town. The last time he had been arrested, um, over a drug offense, he had snitched, and as y'all know, if you're from the hood, like me, (laughs) uh, snitches get stitches. It is my posture, as well as many others, that Jenny was not at all the intended victim that night, and that the kids actually wanted to hurt Curtis. There had been an altercation the night before with Curtis and another boy mad at him for snitching at a local restaurant, and Jenny may have simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time, with the wrong person. Regardless of that, no one is talking. Jenny Pratt's life and her family's life have been forever changed by this single senseless act. Jenny will never ever be who she was. It took her almost a year after this incident to learn how to walk, to learn how to talk, and to learn how to eat on her own again. Her mother said in an interview, quote, I will always love Jenny, but boy do I sure miss the old one, end quote. She later also said in that same interview, quote, I know I should be grateful. My daughter is alive and not everyone can say that. And for that, I feel blessed. At least Jenny is here with us. But sometimes I wonder if what she's doing is actually living, end quote. One small and stupid act, something those kids probably didn't think or know would happen. All that promise, all that light, stolen in the blink of an eye. Jenny's plea, as she was able to talk in the episode, is that someone would please come forward and tell the police who hurt her. She says, quote, I would appreciate that very badly, end quote. Ugh, literally tears. I was like crying when I was watching that episode. Um, it is important to know that a few days after the incident, Curtis gave three names, but later recanted this, um, I guess it wouldn't really be a confession. He reported these three names and then like took it back. And one wonders if Curtis really didn't mean it. Did he actually feel pressured from the police to give three names? Or did Curtis simply not want more snitch targets on his back? Anyway, if you're one of those losers who hurt Jenny, just do the world a favor and fess up already. If you know something, if you've heard one of the people that did it say something, which I know someone does because teenagers are stupid and they talk. Just tell someone. I promise you'll feel better. As of 2015, Jenny was alive and well, however, no closer to determining who harmed her. And Jenny deserves justice. I will die on this hill. Um, in our second story, we learn about the Hit the Road Jack Quinn. <laughs> That's my nickname for him. His name is just Jack Quinn, but I call him Hit the Road Jack a trusted um, vice president of a security firm. So Jack Quinn worked at a company that provided security for banks. He was actually the vice president of security, and that's going to be really ironic, but I'm just going to tell you the story. It doesn't make sense now, but it will soon. On April 9th, 1988, Jack woke up, he kissed his wife, and he went to the office. Uh, this Foreman, uh, General, General Foreman Harry Goldman was working that day and he remembers when Jack came in. He says Jack came in and said, I'm going to take care of the morning run today. As Harry was busy at work at his desk, Jack was busy too. He was bet busy gathering up $1.3 million in cash into a couple of sacks. Adjusted for inflation, that was about $2.5 million. From time to time, Harry would check in on him, and everything seemed peachy. Somehow, without being detected, Jack managed to steal all the money and place it in his company car in the parking lot. He then asked Harold for a ride to take his personal car home. Harold gave him a ride and then drove him back to the office. Jack then got into the company car, which now contained $1.3 million, and drove straight to the airport. Police suspect that he moved the money into suitcases and then possibly just took a trip with no return date. But even though he went to the airport, police are adamant that he did not take a flight. However, I have thoughts about this because I think in 1988 it was probably really easy to falsify a passport because they didn't have all those like holographic markers on there. So there's totally, it's totally a possibility that he just traveled on plane using alias. Um, but no, 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 apparently there were no tickets purchased for him under his actual name, but he also did not rent a rental car because they looked at all the rental car places in the 300 mile radius. Um, and he didn't take a cab and they don't think that he got a ride or at least if he did do any of those things, nobody's talking. I personally feel like there was, I I personally feel either he had like a fake passport or and he used that to slip away, or maybe there was somebody waiting for him. His wife, not knowing what he was up to, got worried when he didn't come home later that night. She called his office and then called the police. The following day, she went to their car and opened up the trunk for looking for any clues that may point to where her husband was. Inside the trunk was $107,000 in cash, And she turned it into the police. Along with the money, there was a note that read, quote, I have done something very wrong. I can't stay and face the consequences, end quote. Jack was smart. You have to hand it to him, even though he's an idiot. All the money was in various denominations, and the serial numbers had not yet been recorded, meaning that there is literally zero chance that they're ever going to be able to use the cash to catch him. When the FBI joined the case, they scoured Jack's personal finances as well as the business. They noticed discrepancies indicating that Jack was most likely involved in an embezzlement scheme prior to this culminating event. Jack was known to love the good life, and who doesn't? Am I right? Uh, Truth be told, it didn't really make sense. A lot of people were questioning it. The things that he had and the things that he and his wife were doing, they simply couldn't be done with his meager $30,000 a year salary. There were rumors that Jack was having an affair. His wife said that he would leave for work at 5 a.m., but his co said that he didn't arrive at work until nine thirty. And boy, he only lived 20 minutes away. Where was he during all this unaccounted for time? Uh, police speculate that they that um they as in Jack and his mistress may have run off together. Breaking news! Dodo, 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 Authorities believe Jack Quinn may be living in Hawaii or Maryland and may be using the alias Calvin Clucky. To which, sir, I doth protest is that the only alias last name that was available that day? Is this a joke? Just go with Miller. Go with Smith. Rodriguez, you gringo cabarde. But Clucky? No. Immediately, no. Not here for it. (laughs) I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. He is a chicken because he like escaped. He couldn't face the music, right? So actually, maybe it's a perfect last name for him. All right, next we have a story in Nashville, Tennessee, and this one is a doozy. Um, It's very similar to a case that we discussed a few weeks ago in that book of world's dumbest criminals. So buckle up your seatbelt. We're in for a a wild ride. In the fall of 1970, beloved couple Clarence and Geneva Roberts fooled everyone. On November 11th, 1970, a fire broke out at the Roberts property. It was like raging out of control. um, When the ash cooled, firefighters found the charred remains of Clarence in the rubble. Ten years later, there was another fire in the house. You guys, these people are not lucky. Or are they? Um, But seriously, this is your little reminder to check your fire alarms two times a year. Okay, safety. Okay. Okay, so the house burnt down again. This time two sets of remains lay in the area. One was obviously Geneva, and the other was Clarence. Again? What? How could this be? How could this happen? The people of Nashville want to know why Clarence would do this. Well, if you remember the episode like 2 weeks ago, This man and woman uh, decided to metaphorically off one of themselves in order to get insurance money. Apparently, Clarence's hardware business had been failing since the 60s. The couple was tight on cash. Still, friends of Clarence and Geneva for over 22 years just cannot believe that they would fake something like this. Clarence, just like hit the road Jack Quinn, enjoyed the luxurious things in life. He had purchased three luxury cars. He had an expensive home. They would go on lavish vacations. But behind this facade of wealth, lies, lies, and more lies. Um, he was feeling a lot of pressure um to finance this lifestyle. He sold his business and one of his cars and gambled this money away, hoping that he would, you know, make it big this time and be able to pay off all of his debts and still live a glamorous life. Police believe that Geneva and Clarence concocted a desperate and gruesome plan. The scariest thing about this whole thing, who was the first body? If in the second fire, we find Clarence and Geneva who was the first body? Everybody wants to know. Okay. So apparently after Clarence died, Geneva was forced to live a life of poverty. She had to get a job in her old age to support herself. And she actually had to downsize and she sold her home and moved to the outskirts of town into a house that like wasn't really in a really great area. So she got a job at a grocery store and she would go there every day to work, you know, probably not making a ton of money, but it helped her to pay the bills. Um, When people at the grocery store began noticing that Geneva was buying a lot of items that didn't seem Geneva-y. So Geneva would buy like two big cases of beer and that just seemed really out of character for her because she was like this tiny slight woman who people said they never really pictured her as like a drinking beer type Um, and also she actually wasn't supposed to even be drinking beer because she was um she had severe diabetes so it just didn't seem practical that Geneva would be purchasing this for herself Meanwhile, if you lived nearby her home, you would notice that there was this man who, you know, would kind of go around the property, but whenever somebody would try to get close to him to, you know, introduce themselves or talk to him, he would retreat back into the house. And people were trying, starting to find this very peculiar. Um, in fact, um, Geneva's sister, who lived next door, said that there would be nights when she would be hearing Geneva and a man sitting and talking on the front porch. Now, she claims that this voice did not sound like Clarence, but here's the thing. When you go to the police and the investigators, at first they were totally like, oh, yeah, this is Clarence. He killed himself by shooting himself in the head with a shotgun. And then he, and then a fire started, I think because it was so dry or whatever. Um, so they were dead set on thinking that in the first fire they had found clearance. However, the remains were very, very charred. It was difficult to absolutely ascertain whether the dental records belonged to him or not, especially due to the gunshot blast that happened right before the fire. Um, but later on, they were able to take the blood type of the body that was found in the first fire and compare it to Clarence's known blood type that he had, that the doctor had the information about. Now the person in the fire had type AB blood, but Clarence had B blood. So this led investigators to believe that there was a murder. And it makes sense when you look into the whereabouts of Clarence up to the days leading to that first fire. So apparently Clarence had been spotted at a local bar talking with a local vagrant. This vagrant had a very similar body type to Clarence. Um, he had like a similar stature. He had a similar hair color. Um, and you know, Clarence was just kind of like whining and dining him, giving him food, giving him beer, you know, and, and, and what homeless person's going to turn that down? You know, like, yeah, sure. I'll hang out with you if you're going to like, give me some food. Sure. Um, not only that, Clarence offered the vagrant man a job and said, you know, I have some bushes and some weeds. Would you like to come back to the house and earn a little bit of money? And the man was certainly happy to do so while Clarence was walking him to their car or to his car, I should say, um, the homeless man collapsed, which already my spidey senses are tingling. And I'm like, all right, Clarence, what did you put in this man's food or what, or, or beer? Um, so Clarence had an audience and he was like, Oh, don't worry. I'm going to take him to the hospital. Like I'll make sure everything's okay. Police checked within a 300-mile radius all the hospitals in the area, and they said that no one remembers Clarence and this homeless man showing up. So, he took the homeless man somewhere. Police are under the conjecture that Clarence staged the suicide to make it look like it was him. He even threw in his mason ring that was like on top of all the ashes, completely unscathed by heat to just create this elaborate plan. And, you know, maybe this doesn't seem believable, but if you look into his history, you'll also see that four to five months prior before this very first fire, Clarence had taken out several insurance policies that equated to a million dollars. Okay, so with all that information... I feel like it's certainly possible that Clarence completely staged this whole thing. I think that it's very similar to the case that we talked to, talked about the other week where the husband and wife were in on it together. The only thing that kind of backfired in this case is that because it was a suicide, a lot of the insurance, uh, Policies were denied when Clarence died because a lot of insurance policies don't cover suicide. Um, Geneva tried multiple times to, you know, have a case brought before the judge to fight these and, you know, get the money that she felt she was entitled to. But all times and through all of the appeals, she was denied every single time. So, now let's talk about the second fire. So, Geneva and Clarence never received this money that it's possible Clarence was hoping that they would receive. Maybe Geneva was in on it too. I don't really know. And I'm not going to speak ill of the dead (laughs) unless you're Clarence or any of the other serial killers that we cover who suck. Um, so in the second buyer, it was very obvious that this Second fire was intentionally set. Um, there was Tarantine, which was used as the accelerant, and this accelerant started in Geneva's bedroom along the bed area, traveled outside of the bedroom, down the hall, into the kitchen, and outside onto the front porch. And at the end of that line of Tarantine, that is where the second body was found. So This leads investigators to wonder, did Clarence kill this homeless man, stage it to look like he died in order to get insurance money, and then he went back to Geneva, who, you know, hid him at her house for quite some time, and then did he have the audacity to then murder his wife and attempt to set the house on fire and get away with it, and that's why he led the, um, flames outside because he was planning on ditching or was this a murder suicide? Was he just like, I'm done with life and and I'm going to take Geneva with me. So I don't know. This case is just all sorts of effed up. Um, I would be very curious to hear your guys' thoughts about it. Uh, so yeah, that is the third case. The final case that we're going to cover is about this bumbling idiot uh, robber of banks, and he actually is such like a Mr. Magoo thief that the nickname that the police have given him is Fumbles. Trust me, you'll see why in a moment. Since July 1984, a bumbling idiot robber has been seen with a mask, gloves, and a baseball bat, and he has robbed 30 banks in the Florida area. I know, it seems insane that he hasn't been caught considering how many mistakes that he is going to make. Okay, so during the first robbery, he walked into the bank, pulled out a gun, and then proceeded to trip over the welcome mat, where in which he dropped the gun, had to fumble to pick it back up, gathered himself, and then proceeded to rob the bank. And then a couple of subsequent robberies, so the second, third, and fourth, he really struggled to keep his mask on. He had, like, this bandana that he would tie around his face, but it kept, like, coming down and so people could see his face. And then in a couple of other robberies, he would, like, drop money on his way out and leave without the full amount that he had robbed. So you could imagine that the police at that point were obviously like slightly amused by his clumsiness, but it was still very much a serious matter. And he just kept racking up robberies. I mean, in the end, he robbed 30 Florida banks. So I don't know what's more embarrassing. The fact that this guy was just fumbling through all of these robberies or the fact that the police still couldn't catch him despite all of these mess ups. Um, I mean, he still had a gun, so it was terrifying for the people involved. I'm sure that when he was dropping money and tripping over welcome mats, people were not laughing, but it's just a little weird. And you have to think to yourself like, okay, is he doing all these things because he's just naturally a clumsy person or is he a hesitant robber? Is he also nervous? And he just has a really hard time, you know, hiding that fact you will be happy to know that this case has an update. Breaking news. Within minutes of this broadcast, a viewer watching was able to call in and a Ross James Preston, a 23-year-old student in the Clearwater, Florida area, was apprehended. Um, when he was arrested, he was driving a truck, which mean, meant was possible for the police to look through it. In the trunk, they found a baseball cap with the letters CAT printed on it. They found sunglasses, they found gardening gloves, and they found a jacket that were all very, very similar, if not exactly (laughs) the items that had been seen on tons of security footage across all of these banks that had been robbed. Um, Facing this large amount of evidence that police had against him on August 2nd, Ross admitted to all of the crimes and entered a plea bargain. Part of the deal is that he would only be charged with seven robberies, not all 30. Preston received a 25-year sentence. He only served 13 before being released for good behavior and that is all I have for you today. I hope that you enjoyed this little recap that we did of Unsolved Mysteries. It has been quite a long time. I think it's been several months since we've done one of these recap episodes, and it's always a great um, treat to work and view my boyfriend Robert (laughs) Snackstack. I just love that man. He is the coolest. Um, If you would like to uh, comment on any of the cases or share any of your ideas, any of your theories that you have about any of the cases that we covered today, you can do so by going to my Instagram at mystery still unsolved. If you would like to binge more episodes, you can go to my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can also purchase merch. Um, I'm also going to link in the show notes, um, a link to my patron program. If you're interested in reading up about that and possibly joining, you'll get all the info that you need there. Um, and if you want to know how to better support this podcast, you can always recommend it to a friend or family member, but don't feel limited by the term family and friends. Tell a teacher, tell a crossing guard, tell your dog walker, tell your mailman or mailwoman. woman. Either way, we don't discriminate here. Um, but I just want everybody to know about mystery Still Unsolved. So tell everybody that, you know, one day I want to hear people chanting Mystery Still Unsolved in the streets. That would be real great. Uh, maybe i'll have a float in the macy's day parade one day (laughs) just kidding um but the best way to support this podcast is and will forever be to just join us next week when together we'll discover did anyone ever place a useful tip has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved